You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAMorg and Facebook. Now, let's go beyond the abstract. Welcome to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. I'm your host, Dr. Sean McNeil, Digital Content Editor for the Journal of Addiction Medicine. Today we're joined by Stefan Kirtes, Professor at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and a physician at the Birmingham VA Medical Center. So welcome to the show, Dr. Kirtes. Um, if you could please start by telling us a bit more about yourself. I'm um, trained in internal medicine, and i also certified under the American Board of Addiction Medicine. I've taken care of individuals who are homeless, uh, predominantly or poor, since 1996, uh, starting in a healthcare for the homeless program, and I've done health services research focused on addiction and primary care, and I've also been very involved in hospital-based policies for the management of opioids. And that leads us to where we are today, talking about your recent piece in the journal, which is a response to the McClure study from the same issue. You write about a clinical scenario involving a patient that you had on an opiate and a benzodiazepine that you later became aware of. Yeah, so we've created a composite of a couple of cases to avoid accidentally breaking some of the rules for the journal and to protect confidentiality. So, But this patient is very close to really two people, but the core situation was somebody who had, um, you know, a man with a history of pain and depression and um, already on methadone for a diagnosed opioid use disorder and some medical problems. And the individual uh, also received short-acting opioids and, in fact, inherited him with those medicines um, on board so already kind of a concerning situation. This is the late 90s. And then uh, the individual was hospitalized and went to a local intermediate care facility that I was actually affiliated with. And when he came out, there were, um, there were also now benzodiazepine on the med list. And the, you know, the man basically said, you know, it's time for you to write my, my renewal of this medication that I'm on. And I couldn't remember, you know, gosh, when did I ever write for this? Um, and, of course, on review, I realized, no, I never did. And then I said, well, maybe the psychiatrist did. So I talked with our team psychiatrist who said, no, um, we never diagnosed uh, a condition that should be treated with a benzodiazepine. So essentially, I discovered an unexpected benzodiazepine in my patient. Now, this wasn't through a urine drug test, but it created many of the same dilemmas because the psychiatrist said, you know what I think happened? There was another psychiatrist out there that we didn't know about, that a lot of patients knew about in the world. Uh, and we're going to this other psychiatrist who died a rather public death, sadly. And when they died, um, a lot of these patients turned out to have prescriptions ongoing from this outside source. This is before the days of a prescription drug monitoring program. And now the patients are habituated to a drug we didn't know they were receiving. Um, and yet, we don't think it's necessarily appropriate. And moreover, 
Uh, in this case, as I describe it, the individual was quite sleepy, um, even when seeing me. So you have every reason to be worried about the risk of potential for overdose. Do you feel that the current, um, the problem that we're having with opioids in our country, especially, do you feel like that's significantly affected the practice of clinicians? Oh, yeah. I mean, so from the early 90s, perhaps, maybe late 80s to 2011, there was a big increase in prescribing of opioids uh, for chronic pain, and that's much described in the media. Um, but even from 2005-06 on, there was a sprinkling and gradually a gathering of papers that suggested that people's behavior while receiving prescribed opioids wasn't always what you could could think of as entirely um, reassuring, you know, somebody who might have other substances used or is having requests for early refills, sometimes those are referred to as aberrant behaviors. They didn't necessarily diagnose the condition of addiction, but they just suggested, gee, life is not nearly as orderly as we thought it was supposed to be. And you mentioned in your piece that many clinicians don't know how to assess and then respond to a positive drug test. First of all, in a lot of places, the first test you get back is a less sophisticated and less expensive test. It's typically a urine immunoassay, and your local hospital or your local provider of lab tests or even the office might have a pretty simple test that doesn't show a lot of detail and might not distinguish, might not detect something like fentanyl, by the way, and it might not, um, it might not even distinguish between it might not pick up oxycodone. Uh, some tests don't do that. Um, so you might have a somewhat primitive test that is, in, is prone to false positives or false negatives. So when you have something abnormal in those urine drug tests, doctors sometimes act on the basis of that. And then others say, you know what, I'm going to order a more costly test from a reference laboratory, which is really a lot of what goes to the LabQuest Corporation are these requests for more sophisticated tests using mass spectrometry. And I think if the payer is present and there's a way to cover the cost, that is the right thing to do, is to get the second layer of testing to figure out what's going on. Um, but even that doesn't tell the whole story, because ultimately you have to align the information from the test with the story from a patient. And if you look at the McClure study, it seems that its strength is in the size of the sample. It, had, it included drug tests from individuals um, from over 140,000 individuals. Um, you did later make the point to discuss the instances where there's an unexpected neg negative result and how that may not correlate with the true prevalence of non-adherence. Um, yeah, so they, what they found is that over just a few highlights, looking at these over 144,000 tests that were collected from 48 states in 2015, um, I think most, if not all, of the testing, it looks like included this high-level mass spectrometry testing that's more expensive. And they found that 30% of the specimens tested negative for the opioid or the benzodiazepine that had been recorded on the requisition form sent to them at the time of the test. Um, so that is an interesting event, and we see it all the time. I review cases like this in our own hospital. And the first presumption, just so you know, there is a church bell ringing in the background, but the first presumption when doctors see that is, oh, the patient is diverting their pills or not taking them. Um, but actually, the 
first step should just be to ask a little bit more about what's going on. And sometimes you find that patients will hoard their pills for what they expect to be bad times and then not take them during times when they are somehow coping better with whatever they're trying to cope with using the medications that we prescribe, hopefully the thing we think they're coping with. Um, or they can run out early. So you might have a patient, and you see this fairly often, a patient on a maybe historically on a middle dose of opioid. Perhaps they were on 10 milligrams four times a day of oxycodone. And then in the last three years, they were reduced because their doctor felt um, that that's what the CDC wanted them to do. And now they're on 7.5 milligrams of hydrocodone three times a day, which is quite a bit lower dose. The doctor just did it to try to create uh, uh, a documentable uh, record of trying to be safe. And then and now dealing with this lower dose actually runs out a week early every month. Um, that is a pretty common scenario, and it isn't necessarily unexpected if you've taken somebody who was perhaps dependent or habituated at one level and you say, I'm going to give you half as much, um, it might very well be the case that the patient would run out early and if that we could have a discussion about the wisdom of that, but the urine drug test essentially shows a person reacting to uh, a dependence or a habituation or a need, frankly, that is partly not going to be addressed by the current regimen. Do you feel that in the cases where we do see that dual prescription of opioids and benzos, do you feel like that represents some lag between the regulations and the change in clinical practice? Oh, I haven't seen, um, I have not seen uh, national data on prescription decisions by doctors to show how much they've changed in the last four years with regard to dual prescribing. However, I have a number of indicators to suggest that physicians have really changed their approach. Most notably, the amount of opioids prescribed per capita has dropped 18% in the last five or six years. And during that entire period, there's been a lot of publicity about the risks of combining benzodiazepines with opioids. And certainly in the Veterans Administration, I don't have a number right at hand, but I know that the percentage who received both at once dropped quite a bit. So I think there's a couple things going on in the McClure data that are not a sign necessarily of doctors who are um, careless. First of all, the, this, this study that I'm commenting on does not have a record of actual prescriptions. The entire study rides on whether people who fill out laboratory requisitions accurately record prescriptions when they submit them to a lab. And the incentive to provide completely accurate information to the lab you're sending something to is mixed. It, if, you're, if you get a test back that suggests your patient took a particular drug you weren't expecting, you might say, you know, just send it off to the lab, see what they find out at LabQuest. And that, you might not even write much down. It might be a clerk in your office who doesn't even know how to decode the medical record to write things accurately in the requisition. So when the LabQuest paper reports that there's some non-prescribed substance, as they put it, what I would say is simply, it looks like requisitions didn't always reflect uh, what was found in the person, and that could happen for any number of reasons. All right. So many of uh, patients of our patients have an emotional response to being taken off medications like these, and usually involves maybe anger. Uh, do you feel that the average patient is able to 
to grasp the safety concerns and to grasp your rationale when making these changes? I think that's where we get to the the big question is, when, if ever, can you do something to somebody against their will and with what justification? And with opioids and benzodiazepines, that is quite controversial right now. So there are health systems um, and even state regulators and quality metrics organizations that have looked at the CDC guideline and come to the conclusion that in some way or another, it's actually demanding that people who are currently stable and currently not showing harm should be taken off of opioids or reduced in their dose against their will regardless. But from talking with people who worked on the CDC guideline, they don't think that's what their guideline says. And uh, they would say, and I'm really thinking of people who are on the core expert group, that the, um, the options are to discuss with the patient risks that you think could apply from receiving a medicine and try to encourage them to consider a plan of dose reduction, which may or may not work out well, by the way, but you know, where there's a voluntary patient, and only to reduce dose when you see actual harm, actual harm where you say, look, this is hurting you. I see the harm. The benefit is ambiguous. And in that instance, one could make the case to reduce dose, as I describe in the composite, against a person's will. Um, so I think that's kind of, things are still kind of up in the air about that, but it, the data for merely reducing a patient's dose without them voluntarily consenting to that is non-existent. Um, or let me say, I know one, one case series that reports a clinic policy that required dose reductions for opioids. It didn't look at discontinuation of benzodiazepines. And in that case series, about 60% of the people eligible for the policy simply didn't have it applied to them. Well, Dr. Curtis, I would like to thank you so much for sharing your insights about this issue with us. Thank you so much. This is a pleasure. This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.